Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 5. We'll actually do the recap of what was going on after we get through this text, but just a little bit of background. Jesus has just healed a man who was disabled for 38 years, and that has caused the ire of the religious leaders of the time, mainly because this miracle took place on the Sabbath. Okay, and there's a little bit more details that we'll unpack as we go. But this is John chapter five, beginning in verse 16. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed." For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself." And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved." 
John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Focus on these verses. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The word of God for the people of God. So as you can see, this is a pretty jam-packed set of texts. And I feel lately that I have been beginning most of my sermons with this caveat. I've been saying something about the difficulty of the passage that we're looking at. And sadly, this week is no different, primarily because of our text's length, but also because of the theological density of this passage. I know that it's really difficult to listen to somebody who's looking at a screen rattle off 30 or so verses from the Bible, but maybe you kind of looked up and you caught on to something, perhaps about the resurrection of the dead, perhaps about judgment that's to come, perhaps about the relationship between Jesus and his father. John is covering a lot of ground in this text, in this presentation of Jesus and his conversation with the Pharisees. Remember that in the Gospel of John, what we have is a very verbose, a very talkative, a very chatty, if you will, Jesus. He's always going on these long diatribes with people, whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's healing. He's um, feeding people. He's with folks. It's, it's a bit more terse, but in John, it's not weird for Jesus to be presented as just rattling off all of this teaching. And as I mentioned, some of the notable themes that occur over this 30-verse stretch includes the relationship of Jesus with God the Father. This is something that sets the Pharisees off because not only was Jesus doing miracles on a day that he maybe should not have been doing miracles, he was calling himself to be equal with God. He talks about the role of Jesus in the process of salvation. What is that, what that looks like for the people that believe in Jesus? He seems to, um, to give them eternal life. He talks about the nature of that life. He talks about the reality of judgment, and he mentions the resurrection of the body that is coming at some point. I don't know if this struck you as odd, but it says the ones who have done good are resurrected to life. The ones that have not done good are not resurrected to life. We can unpack that, and I think that over time we might return to some of these themes. I don't think that I'm going to read those 30 verses in public to you ever again, but I do think that we might return to some of these themes. But I really only want to focus on one detail in this passage tonight. 
But by way of background, we need to sort of back up a bit so that we can understand what's going on. We need to remember that in the preceding verses that Jesus has just performed a miracle at the pool of Bethesda near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, this pool was an ancient site that was believed to be invested with miraculous healing properties caused perhaps by an unpredictable, angelic stirring of the waters. You remember, if you want to punk your friends, just tell them that your life verse is John 5, 4, because that verse does not exist. And in this verse, uh, at your footnotes, it will say that there's a tradition that people that are surrounding this pool, when the water's stirred by the angels, that they were to get in the pool and they might receive some sort of healing for their ailments. As a result, this site, it gathered many people with various disabilities each of whom sat waiting for the movement of the waters, which was thought to initiate its pool's healing potential. So ostensibly, when the waters began to move, these people would get into the waters. Some people think it was the first one in that would get healed. Other people think it was anybody who showed up while the pool was moving and while the waters were moving. But Jesus approaches this man who had been disabled for 38 years, let us not forget, and says simply, do you want to get well? He says nothing about the pool. He says nothing about the magic waters. He says nothing about angels. He simply asks if the man wants to be healed. And last week I argued that when you understand this context of that story, it takes on an added dimension. Jesus is not just healing. He is not just taking someone who has not uh, been well for 38 years and reconstituting or restoring him to community. He is exerting his authority over the mythical healing waters. He's saying to not only this person, but everyone else around, what you're waiting for, you don't need it. The waters were completely unnecessary. He was able to heal them apart from the waters. So Jesus simply tells the man to pick up his mat and to walk, and that's exactly what he does. And this is where the story gets even more interesting because the Jewish leaders of the day see this newly healed man, this person that they may have even recognized as the one who has been sitting around this pool for 38 years, give or take, to see him walking with his mat and not to celebrate with him, but to call him out on breaking the Sabbath by carrying his mat and walking home. And it seems nonsensical to us that this would even be on the table of discussion. And in some ways, it really is nonsensical. But the Sabbath for these people, it was a really, really big deal. Even the Ten Commandments, that great Jewish law code, it included a word on keeping the Sabbath holy. And in order to do this, no work could be done. One version of the Ten Commandments even says that in the same way that God created on six days and then rested on the seventh, so too we must work six days and then rest on the seventh. For the Pharisees, this meant not carrying your mat on the Sabbath, even if you had just been healed of a debilitating condition that had virtually defined who you were for the last 38 years. These religious folks eventually find out that it was Jesus who healed this man and told him, in effect, to break the Sabbath by asking him to pick up his mat and to walk home. So these super religious, super committed, super law-abiding leaders, they find Jesus, and the common English Bible says they harass him. 
Because for them, carrying your mat on the Sabbath was a big deal. You don't mess with the Sabbath and you don't mess with tradition. And you could say, and you don't mess with the Pharisees. But in the same way that Jesus bypasses the traditions of the waters, he also bypasses the tradition that is afforded to the Sabbath by saying there's something different going on here. He bypasses the traditions surrounding the healing waters of the pool of Bethesda, and here he bypasses the legal traditions of the Sabbath. And to be clear, because this is where I think we get messed up a lot of times, it's not that he's unconcerned with the law. Many Christians, when they hear something like this, they too quickly go to, oh, it's about grace. It's not about law keeping. It's not about works. This is not what Jesus is after. He's not attacking Jewish legalism and neither is Paul most of the time either, if you have that in the back of your mind as well. Jesus instead is rereading the Old Testament for his audience. He knows the Ten Commandments. He knows the traditions surrounding the Sabbath laws. But what he's doing here is he is performing a rereading of the law. Or better, he's reinterpreting for them what it means to keep the Sabbath. Apparently for Jesus, keeping the Sabbath holy involved healing someone and then telling them to go home and to carry their mat and become a vital part of society again. It was privileging life over rules and tradition that the Pharisees did not understand in this story. And this leads up to our 30-verse monologue where Jesus is describing to the Pharisees who he is, and what gives him the authority to make these moves, to do these things, to subvert tradition that had been binding for the entirety of their religious life. Understand the radicality of what Jesus is doing here, saying to the Pharisees, the rules that you have, I'm not playing by them. I'm in a different game, and I'd invite you to come along with me. In fact, I can give you eternal life. In fact, I can talk about the resurrection of the dead. In fact, me and my dad, were one. We are equal. He's saying all sorts of things that they have no framework of understanding. The gist of what Jesus says over these 30 verses, if you kind of phased out and went, went here and there and, and anywhere else as I was reading those things, which I don't blame you for doing, this is the gist of what Jesus says. You guys... You religious leaders, you protectors of the law, you do not understand. And to solidify his case towards the end of this monologue, he cites four pieces of testimony, if you will, or four witnesses that can solidify what he is saying. He appeals to them in order. The first one that he appeals to is John the Baptist. The second one that he appeals to is the work that he is doing. He says, remember the miracles that have just taken place. Those must mean something to you. Then he brings in God the Father, saying God the Father is also testifying for me. And then finally, Finally, he says the scriptures testify and provide a witness. And maybe it's not too surprising, but it's this last witness, the witness of scripture that has stuck out to me this week. Jesus says to the Pharisees, I want to read it to you again. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And then he gets even more personal and he says, if you believed Moses, that's a mic drop moment. Because what Jesus is doing is he is saying, the person that you have lived your life trying to understand his writings, 
the guy that, that you have spent your whole life studying, if you believe his words, his teachings, his traditions that he inspired, then maybe you would believe in me, he says. For he, remember Moses, the guy that you place in a seat of privilege, your prophet, your source, he wrote about me in the books that you have been studying your entire life, the books that you have memorized, the books that you have committed to memory that could quote at any given moment. He has written those scriptures about me and you do not understand. But since you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Are you catching the shade that Jesus is throwing here? It's hard to miss. He's laying it on super thick. In fact, in a very real sense, what Jesus is doing is discrediting the Pharisees' entire life's work, claiming that they have missed the real significance of Moses and the scriptures. These books, Jesus says, they point to me. These stories, he claims, they're fulfilled in me. These poems and psalms and songs, these prophecies, these laws, these traditions, Jesus averse, they are about me and they testify to me and you have missed it. For John, this happened because their starting point was all wrong. As a result, they can't see what is right in front of them. One noted New Testament scholar named Richard Hayes says this, Jesus's adversaries, despite their earnest scrutiny of Moses's writings, they lapse into interpretive failure because they reject Jesus's astonishing claim to be the true and ultimate referent to whom Moses's words point. The thing that grabs me despite their earnest scrutiny, despite their lifetime of study, they're missing the point. These are the professionals. These are the ones that you would expect to be attuned to what God is doing in the world. These are the experts. These are the ones who get paid to read the scriptures. These are the teachers. These are your professors. These are the people that should know. But despite their earnest scrutiny of Moses's writings, they lapse into interpretive failure. We can contrast this depiction of the Pharisees with Philip in chapter one of the book of John. Jesus shows up. He has just called um, Andrew and Peter. And it says the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He finds Philip and he says to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, he was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip immediately goes and finds his friend, and this is what he says about Jesus. We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The experts, they don't get it. They don't see it. The Pharisees have no idea what's going on, but Philip immediately sees Jesus and says of him, He's the one that we've been waiting for. Now, this is a common motif in the Gospels, but it's important for us to consider. Every time it comes up, we will consider this. The ones that you would expect to get it, they don't. The professionals, the scholars, the experts, 
They do not get it. But the ones that you probably wouldn't have any expectations from them whatsoever, whether it's fishermen like Andrew and Peter, or in this story, it's Philip and his friend Nathaniel, or a few chapters later, it's the woman at the well, or even later than that, the royal official who has sold out his people, who has become the object of hatred, who begins to understand who Jesus is, or here in the verses immediately preceding what we're looking at this evening, it's the sick man who has been waiting for mythical, magical waters to stir, all of these people get it. That might be a bit of an overstatement, but they haven't given their lives to studying the Old Testament texts like the Pharisees have. In diverse ways and to different levels, they are at least open to what Jesus is about. If we were unfamiliar with this story we would probably side, we would probably bet that it's those who were paid to study the scriptures that would get it. We would have sided with the experts, the professionals. We would have thought that the religious elite would have it all figured out. But in this story, and in many others, they don't. Their starting point is all jacked up. They don't accept Jesus, so they can't see how he is fulfilling these Old Testament scriptures. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Jesus' charge against his contemporaries is that they have been looking at the right book, but reading it in the wrong way. I want you to come back to me here for a moment and hear this again. Jesus' charge against his contemporaries is that they have been looking at the right book, but reading it in the wrong way. And this idea is what caught my attention this past week, mainly because when you hear it phrased that way, maybe you remember how dangerous the Bible is or how dangerous the Bible can be. You're not going to like this. But it wasn't too long ago that some Christians were using the Bible to legitimize slavery. And if that strikes you as preposterous, and it should, consider that there has been only a few weeks separating us from the use of the Bible by some Christians to legitimize and support the allocation of government funds to build a wall at our southern border because, quote, heaven has a wall. To be honest, I'm less concerned with the gross misunderstandings of Scripture in this community, amongst us as people, regardless of your political leanings. Hopefully, we can all get on board with, if you want to fund a wall at the southern border, great. You just can't use the text about heaven to do it. I think that we should all be able to admit that these readings are fueled by the wrong starting point. In this community, I'm not worried about those gross misinterpretations. I'm concerned about something else, and I guess I could use my own life as as an example. For the past 20 years, I have devoted my entire academic and in many ways my entire vocational calling to the study of the Bible. I remember being a bright-eyed 17-year-old in Bible college sitting under professors who would take the Bible and speak about it in ways that I had never heard before, 
in learned ways, in academic ways, in ways where they were exploring the context of what was going on in each passage, in ways that went beyond a devotional reading, in ways that went beyond the daily bread and the, a paragraph devotional each morning. It was something that, that lit a fire in me, and I have pursued that call for the last 20 years. That put me on a path to seminary. It put me on a path to grad school. I remember after graduating from Bible college, instead of taking time off, I graduated in May, and in June, I found myself in a class of about 20 people devoting their summer to learning biblical Hebrew. <laughs> now that, friends, is how you spend a summer. Okay, you don't need to go abroad. You don't need to go on a cruise or go on a vacation or an all-inclusive. You just go and you get in a room with 20 or so people and you learn biblical Hebrew. It was something that was completely captivating to me. And that class in particular, it was that and also it was the DVDs of season one of Lost, uh, one of the greatest shows of all time. So I would go and learn about Hebrew and I would go home and watch Lost like crazy. This was before Netflix. You guys don't know the oppression that we went through when you had to buy DVDs and then actually watch them. And then when it was over, you were done. You had nowhere else to go unless you wanted to unload another $45 on a season of DVDs, which you don't. But it was Hebrew and lost and my life was becoming so great. It was all coming together for me, but everything was changing. Because understanding Jesus and the Bible at a deeper level was meaningful for me in ways that I cannot even begin to describe. We made the decision as a church, this is gonna be an odd segue, but I think it fits. We made the decision as a church to nix our downtown office. We spend about, uh, it's under $3,000 per year on um, having this office, and it's where I store all of my books. And I can't tell you what it's like for me just to go and to sit on the couch and to be surrounded by all of my beautiful books. Kate's pumped about this because, and I'm super pumped because I read an article that said it's good for your kids if they're around books. So what I want to do is I want to take our dining room and transform it into like a little mini library and just have bookshelves all around so I can go and sit in the middle and just be surrounded by these beautiful volumes. How weird do I sound right now on a scale of one to 10? Thank, okay, great. For some of you, it's like 20. And for others of you, it's like, no, I totally understand what you're saying. I've tried to bring all of this learning, whatever I have, I try to bring it to the table of these talks. Whatever I've gained, whatever learning I have um, found, whatever conversations I have found meaningful, I try to bring it here so that we can consider it together. Now, there's a saying amongst seminary students. They say, and Josh, I don't know if you remember this, but they said, um, you only use about 20% of what you gain in seminary in the pastorate. I don't buy that at all which is why when we're here and we're doing the work of interpretation, we go about the work of setting the proper historical context in these passages. The work of looking at Greek and Hebrew syntax, the work of reading good commentaries and challenging essays and thoughtful books that stretch our imaginations and convict our spirits. We don't gather for these book studies just for kicks. We gather because we want to be changed, hopefully. In addition, we have been committed to dialogue. We have been committed to learning, to growing, to being thoughtful and engaged and open. This was one of the proudest things I was able to write on my little phone here. It says, I believe that many of us have come to a place of being able to say, I was wrong about something. 
Do you understand the bravery that it takes for someone who has grown up in a religious system to be able to take a step and say, maybe that's not the only way of thinking about something. Maybe Jesus looks and sounds different than what I was given as a kid. Maybe heaven is something different than what I used to think it was. Maybe faith is something different than what I used to think it was. Being able to get to the place where you say, I was wrong, is a beautiful place because it is inspired by openness and growth. I believe that many of us are open to new ways of thinking, and I find that to be beautiful. I'll say this as well, and you can look around. I don't know if challenging people at that level is a growth market thing. I don't know if it goes along with the smoke and the lights of what church has become in many spheres but I'm really proud of the work that we're doing. I could tell you so many exciting stories of the people who exemplify this in their own personal journeys. I'm looking around the room at some of you right now and just getting so proud of, of how you're thinking and how thoughtful you are and where you have, have gone on your journey. All the work we do though, even though I could tell these stories, I want to, to slow us down and before we pat ourselves on the back, we need to be reminded that all of this, all of the work that we do, it might not be leading us to the right result. We too might be looking at the right book, but reading it in all the wrong ways. I don't have a grand conclusion, so I'm gonna, break, I'm gonna prepare you right now. About 15 seconds, okay? Maybe 30, probably a minute and a half, but just somewhere in that general ballpark. We might have the best reading of the Bible in town with the most thoughtful and well-reasoned and spirit-led conclusions. But if it doesn't lead to life transformation, if it doesn't lead to renewed passion and commitment, if it doesn't lead to a vigorous and concerted care and love for our neighbor, if it doesn't lead to the work of the gospel taking place in our diverse settings, the places where we work, the people that we have influence with, the conversations that we're able to have, if it doesn't lead to us living more like Jesus, if it doesn't lead to us picking up our cross, denying ourselves and following him, then everything we are working for isn't worth much. You might just as easily say, it's not worth anything. New Testament scholar Daniel Kirk said recently on a podcast, it's important for us to not come away from any passage until we've been able to name how we or how the communities that we are a part of tend to do the very same sorts of things that Jesus' opponents are doing. And here we have the Pharisees. They're the experts. They're the knowledgeable ones. They're the ones hosting book studies. They're the ones going to community awareness meetings. They're the ones posting all the right socially aware memes to show everyone just how loving they are. But they missed what was standing right in front of them. They missed Jesus. And so the question that I want to ask us is, have we? 
Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.